If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship and of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed uh, to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 13 of Ephesians, Paul begins to do a bit of a pivot. Uh, In the beginning of the letter, he's spent a lot of time talking about uh, what has been accomplished in Christ Jesus. And in chapters 4 and 6, he's going to spend a lot of time talking about what's expected of the church. Uh, But in chapter 3, he begins to, um, to pivot. And one of the reasons is that he knows that as the Ephesians are struggling with their faith, with the question of whether or not they should remain faithful... They, uh, part of that struggle is that Paul, the ambassador for King Jesus, the person who's raised from the dead and in control of everything, Paul's in prison. He's in chains. And so in verse 1, he writes, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He mentions it. And then again in verse 13, he says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. In other words, you could interpret that Paul's in chains, that Paul's God is not very strong. You could say that Paul's God is not worthy of worship. It wasn't worth leaving what we've had before in Ephesus for uh, for this God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. And Paul uses verses 1 through 13 as a bit of an autobiographical note to say, no, that would be the wrong conclusion to, to draw. And I want you to be encouraged by the way that the mystery is actually being revealed by what I'm doing and in my life, and what this mystery holds for you. Paul says a mystery has been revealed to him. It's not been revealed before to the sons of men, only now, in the right time, through the Holy Spirit, has a particular revelation been made known, which is, of course, God's purposes in and through Jesus Christ. But Paul wants to be even more specific than that. In verse 6, he tells you exactly what he's talking about when he talks about the mystery of, of God's action and this mystery which he is entrusted with to, um, to bring to light for all of the Gentiles. That mystery is the inclusion of the Gentiles. That suddenly, for all of the Old Testament, you essentially have the Old Testament people of God. That's where God shows his favor. That's where he does his work. Those are the Jews. And then you've got everyone else in the world, and those are the Gentiles. 
But Paul says in chapter 2 that no, in Christ, well, in fact, I'll tell you exactly how he says it. It's 2.14 through 16. Paul writes, For he himself, speaking of Jesus as our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself is one new man in place of the two, so making peace. What Paul is saying is there's not Jew and Gentile anymore, and it's not that the Gentiles have become Jews or the Jews have become Gentiles. It's that an entirely new man has been birthed as a result of the work, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, that alone is not the mystery, at least to what Paul's talking about. The inclusion of the Gentiles is not that astonishing, even from an Old Testament perspective. God had promised to Abraham that uh, Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to all the nations. Uh, We've already anticipated in Old Testament stories Gentiles becoming God worshipers in stories like Jonah and the story of Rahab. And Old Testament prophets looked forward to a time when Gentiles would bring tribute and worship God in Jerusalem. There's a a prophetic vision that uh, a time is coming when God will essentially conquer the whole world But the vision in the Old Testament is kind of cast in the sense that the world will become Jewish. Everyone will come and honor Yahweh. So the mystery isn't exclusively the inclusion of the Gentiles. That's always been expected to some extent. The mystery is how it has occurred. Rather than God conquering in some sense the world and making it worship Yahweh so that they flood to Jerusalem... God has come to earth and died on a Gentile cross, and the word now goes out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. It's, the mystery is that the inclusion of the Gentiles has happened in the most unexpected of, ma- of ways. And this is what Paul is holding out, that this mystery uh, changes everything. Its implications are so deep and so far and so wide that they, they can hardly be ascertained in a, in a simple single setting. God has surprised everyone, and in his work in Christ and the inclusion of the Gentiles and the way they're being included, this mystery uh, has uh, deep ramifications. And what Paul does in 1 through 13 is say, this has transformed me, and it is intended to transform you, believers in Ephesus, and of course it's intended to transfer us, you know, the worshiping church in the 21st century. Well, how do we see that? As Paul begins to unpack the mystery, look with me at verse 1 and how he frames his situation. Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, let's be clear. Paul is a prisoner under Roman guard and in Roman chains. And yet he says, I am a prisoner not of Rome, but of Christ Jesus. In other words, from Paul's Situation because he has been received this revelation of God's mystery and knows that if God in his mystery can work life out of death, then whatever he is suffering, whatever has befallen him, is part of the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he does not consider himself a prisoner of Rome. He does not consider himself in Roman chains. He says, no, I am a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And this is not because Rome is exercising control over a new movement that's surprising to it. It is because this is done on behalf of you Gentiles. There is something about my imprisonment that is actually serving the extension of the gospel because this is the mystery of how God works. He works in surprising ways and through paradox. 
Paul not only sees his situation entirely differently, he goes on to, uh, to demonstrate to us how he sees himself differently. Look down at verse 7. Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So Paul can use the word mystery and gospel interchangeably. What's been revealed to him is a mystery, ultimately the cross. It is also the good news of God, and it is that which uh, exhibits and works the power of God in his life. But he says that God has given him a ministry, and this ministry entrusted to Paul, Paul calls God's gift to him. How often do we think of our ministry as our gift to God? Not so for Paul. What he's been called to participate in, what he's been called to labor in, he considers God's gift to him, which for Paul meant a lot of beatings, a lot of ridicule, a lot of being turned out from social organizations. And that Paul will call this God's gift to him. Now, Paul has already alluded to this idea back in chapter 2, which if you have your Bibles open, you can look at 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, in those good works. What's Paul saying? God loves you and saves you. Yes, he calls you to have faith in him, but that's not all he's doing. He also calls you to actually participate in good works that he has prepared beforehand so that you might be made holy, so that you might be made new, that you are, um, Paul calls God the craftsman, and you are the material in his hands. And by participating in good works, Right? just like Paul is doing in his ministry, you become transformed. The old self is whittled away. The new self emerges. Right? We can't underestimate how important it is for us to remember that, uh, that God's ministry is a gift to us. Right? Are you engaged in ministry? Do you actually labor in some capacity to serve the church, to extend the kingdom, to honor Jesus Christ? Right? Paul is holding out that this is God's gift to him, and it is God's gift to you as well. You know, we underestimate, we often, um, well, we go, we go down a terrible road when we think of ministry as our gift to God. Do we not? Because suddenly then, I only need to do ministry when I need to um, make sure that my relationship with God is in good stead. And so I'm only going to give so much that meets that criteria. I'm not going to give much else. And ultimately, ministry that you do will ultimately be about you because it's all driven by the uh, need that you have, the, uh, uh, the desire you have to feel like you're in good standing with God. And so you'll do that much ministry. And even your service to other people is ultimately service to yourself. It's a terrible road to go down. You know, even, even um, psychology... And people outside of the church have recognized how important it is for a human being to understand that uh, uh, your success is the result of forces that are outside your control. Robert Frank is a psychologist at Cornell University. And he, um, in 2007, he just dropped on the tennis court. Uh, he suffered sudden cardiac arrest. And uh, fortunately, though, the guy he was playing with, a guy named Tom, even though he didn't know CPR, he ran up and started doing chest compressions. And an ambulance got to Robert really quickly, which was unusual because ambulances were actually dispatched from the other side of town. 
But this uh, ambulance had already been dispatched to a car wreck. And two ambulances were sent to this car wreck, but only one was needed. So one could be diverted very quickly to where Robert was. And so within minutes of collapsing, they had paddles on Robert's chest. And he was rushed to the local hospital. He was then care flighted to a bigger hospital in a bigger city where he was put on ice overnight. And uh, ultimately, he makes it, which something like 90% of people who suffer sudden cardiac arrest don't make it. And those that do make it have uh, significant impairment usually. And though Robert apparently spoke gibberish for three or four days after being on ice, he was released on day four, and within two weeks he was playing tennis again with Tom. And Robert says, I'm, I'm a lucky guy. Right? If, if Tom didn't do chest compressions, or if the ambulance wasn't that close, or if I didn't have access to this hospital, I would not have made it. And so, as a psychologist, it made him start to think about luck and about being unlucky. Looked at a guy named Mike Edwards, who's a professional cellist in London, and he was, in 2010, driving down a rural road in England, and a 1,300-pound bale of hay happened to roll down a hill and land on his van and crushed him. His life is snuffed out by a random bale of hay, right? Unlucky. And so Robert explores this path, and as he conducts these studies and explores it, he realizes that people who consider themselves lucky, who attribute their success to factors beyond their control, are much more generous and committed to the public good. And people who don't see luck as a factor, people who say, oh, I am successful because of what I've done, and largely attribute uh, what they've received as something that they have earned and deserve, are not generous. And they're not committed to the public good. Now, this is actually a very old idea, right? If we were simply to take Robert's thoughts and replace the idea of luck with grace, right? and to replace the idea of uh, how one evaluates their success in relationship to the factors that they control and factors outside them, and replace that with pride, we'd realize that this is an old idea indeed. But it's when we do not recognize ministry as a gift, when we think of ministry as something that we do as a gift to God, that we suddenly think that we are receiving what we earn and we don't attribute things to outside factors. We don't, aren't actually appreciating God's grace in our life. That not only, friends, really understand God's grace, not only is our salvation completely by grace, but our sanctification is completely by grace. God has already prepared the good works that you are called to do. And to not engage them, right, is to simply turn your back on becoming the, the holy person that God intends and desires for you to be. Which is what happens when we fall into this, this temptation of pride. So two remarkable ways, as the Ephesians are under persecution and thinking about walking away from Christ, and look at Paul who's in prison and say, you're not much of an encouragement because you're in prison. Paul says you have no idea of really understanding the mystery of what God has done. And the inclusion of the Gentiles, the mysteries that are being worked out in my imprisonment, and the mysteries that will be worked out in you. And from this personal autobiographical note, he's told them, I'm not a prisoner of Rome, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Which means the suffering that I am enduring becomes defined not by the world's definition, but by Christ alone. Which means that your suffering gets defined by Christ and not by the world. And he says, that which is entrusted to me, the good works that have been prepared beforehand for me to do, right, these are a gift from God. 
I don't have anything to offer to God. And again, that has to be our posture as well. That we've received all of God's kindness. We've contributed nothing to it. Therefore, we should be eager to be generous. In fact, I think the church should really be a body in which more often than not, our attitude is, how could we not be generous? How could we not be radically giving and radically sacrificing, given what God has sacrificed on our behalf? This is exactly what Paul is trying to describe to the church in Ephesus to inspire them, to motivate them to participate in this mystery. Right? If you look down all the way to verse 9, he talks about um, preaching this mystery to the Gentiles and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Why? Verse 10, So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul's calling and, and mission is bound up so that the church might be established, this new man forged out of Jew and Gentile. Well, why are we forging a new people? What's the purpose of the new people? To demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, this is actually, verse 10 in Ephesians is one of the most remarkable statements in the whole New Testament because it's the only place that Paul speaks, or any New Testament writer for that matter, of God doing something through the church. Now, Paul will often speak of work being done through Christ. But here he says the work, God's manifold wisdom, is actually being made manifest, put on display through the church. You as a body of believers are called to demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God. Well, what is this manifold wisdom of God? Well, certainly it's mystery. It's a mystery Paul's been talking about. It's the mystery that begins in the cross, which is... A, a victory of life that comes out of death. And it's the mystery that Paul embodies, that uh, he calls himself the least of all saints, even though that he was at, at the top of Judaism prior to his conversion. Right? And he says his ministry is simply a gift. In his humility, he demonstrates this mystery. And as the mystery then goes into the church and a new people are created, they embody the wisdom of God when we embody and put on display the paradox that is bound up with God's manifold wisdom, with the cross, right? Paul says it so well in 1 Corinthians 1.25 when he says that the weakness of God is stronger than men and the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And yet, to be sure, God's wisdom is often paradoxical for us that we would say that life comes out of death that blessing can come out of cursing, that, um, that weakness is demonstrated in strength. This is what we embrace or called to embrace when we're called to be part of the group, the chosen new people who puts on display the manifold wisdom of God. But that was, that's not the voice of the rulers and authorities, is it? Of those voices that dictate so much of what happens in the world that you would be powerful by pursuing power and that you would be blessed by pursuing blessing, that you would be strong by pursuing strength as the world defines those terms. These are the voices of the powers and rulers. And when we decide to actually sacrifice and live to identify with Jesus and with Paul, we reveal to the world that the rulers and authorities are emperors with no clothes. But that's a hard calling. It was hard for Paul and it's hard for us because so often we feel like the blessings 
of this world are far more tangible and far more present than is what we are promised to receive in the midst of suffering with Christ and putting on this, the display of the manifold wisdom of God, which is paradoxical. We're called to live in paradox. We're called to be a prisoner in chains and to say, I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And do not, do not weep or be sorry for my suffering because it is to your glory. That's a very paradoxical statement. We're not good at this, and I, I think, frankly, we've been getting worse and worse at it. Uh, an important study came out a couple of weeks ago, um, which is on the idea of uh, concept creep, is what it's called. And concept creep is the idea that uh, a concept is established, and over time it has the tendency to creep, to expand to cover more territory, and to its definition gets broadened. And so the study is looking at ideas like trauma and abuse and um, uh, bullying and uh, safety and things that the American people tend to perceive uh, to, to threaten us with harm and how those concepts have been expanded over time. Now, sometimes concept creep is a good idea when we're committed to the safety of public and we make a law like everyone needs to wear their seatbelt. But sometimes concept creep just happens almost as if it has a life of its own and controls us. You know, if the, uh, the article argues that in the 1950s, any nine-year-old could ride their bike around the neighborhood or play at the park by themselves. You know, as long as you were home by the time the streetlights came on or by the time dinner was set, that was okay. It was an acceptable aspect of culture. We don't think that anymore. Right? In fact, uh, there are numerous stories of people in various cities in America who let their nine-year-old play at the park alone and were arrested for child endangerment. Right? Uh, one woman who left her, her older child in the car uh, just for a few moments to run in the store lost her, her fast food job, and she lost custody of her child for a period for endangering that child. Right? Now, when we don't let our children do things like that, is it because the threat has increased, right? That would be logical. If suddenly there is a new or an expanded threat to my child by virtue of playing on a park because of some fantastic increase in the number of predators, then that would be a very logical conclusion. But the risk to your child of being kidnapped or being the subject of a predator between 1950 and today hasn't changed a dot. We're just way more scared. We feel more threatened by that idea of harm. And this is the notion of concept creep, that a concept has grown and broadened over time. It's not just that. There was a teenager in an American city who uh, was frustrated with her teacher. Right? You may have known that experience at some point in your life. And she went online to Facebook or something, and she, she ranted a little bit. And you know what? The rant was pretty mild. I read it. It wasn't that big of a deal. It was disrespectful, to be sure. Student absolutely should have been punished for it, but she was suspended for cyberbullying, the teacher, which was a permanent mark on her record and probably will have a direct impact on what school she can get in now. Right? What happened? The notion of abuse, the definition of cyberbullying, got expanded in a ridiculous way. That makes it look kind of silly. Or you take the idea of trauma. We only, only as a society do we begin to really understand what trauma is, at least in terms of like PTSD after World War II. And, and people had shell shock. And initially, shell shock referred to actually bodily injury. 
Well, then it became trauma, and trauma became defined as PTSD. And over time, it's gotten expanded and expanded and expanded. Now you may be interested to know that uh, a number of things can be... um, can qualify as PTSD. Now, the first one I'm almost scared to read because some of you would probably say, yes, that definitely qualifies. So the first uh, thing that, that has been, well, one example of what's been at is childbirth. So I'm not going to speak to that one because I'm not qualified <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. But sexual harassment, infidelity, emotional losses, such as abandonment by a spouse or loss of a sudden move or loss without, within that range... This is one of the government's definitions now. Individual trauma results from an event, series of events, or set of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or threatening, and that has lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning in physical, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. So what's trauma? It's whatever you want it to be. Which led a Wellesley student who saw a statue of a man in his underwear to uh, file a petition with the school to have the statue removed because it was emotionally threatening and had lasting adverse effects on her spiritual well-being. We could go on. Right? We could call it... In, well, let me finish and then I'll say a caveat. We could go on and talk about uh, the exponential increase in drugs being prescribed for ADD and ADHD and depression. Now, a fair number of you fit into one, probably one of the categories that I described. And my last intent is to speak into any individual case, right? That's not my business, and that's not what I'm qualified to do. What I'm pointing out is that I think this article is making a very valid point, that as a society, we have developed an increased and oversensitivity to the notion of harm. So fearful of being threatened in some capacity that we overreact and become overprotective. And the point that I'm trying to make in raising this is that if this has been the societal default and we as a church live in this society, my goodness, for me, I really, uh, it seems hard, I, I would find it difficult to argue against the idea that this concept creep of being oversensitive to harm has not deeply influenced the church. In this sense, that when we look at Paul, and Paul says, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and I'm willing to suffer whatever is necessary for the mystery of God to be unfolded, because Paul knows in a way that you and I don't, this life is a wisp. And he looks forward to eternity with Christ and is willing to make great sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. And we look at Paul and say, that's nice, that's not really what I'm interested in. I don't want a life like Paul's. And I don't want a life like Jesus's. And that becomes really problematic given that the very definition of discipleship is that you would pick up your cross and follow after Christ. Right? Do you begin to get the tension that exists there? Between Christ saying, yes, come follow me. I promise you sacrifice and suffering. And us saying, well, we don't, that's not really the idea of the, uh, the abundant life that we have. And that's where we as a church have really engaged in our own concept creep. Over time in the American story, the concept was introduced that what Christ is promising you is the American dream. And so over time, that concept has creeped to consume more and more of us and more and more of the church so that when we think when Christ is working in our midst, yes, we're enjoying health and wealth. Well, if you couple our oversensitivity to harm and our expectation to be blessed materially, 
and health and wealth by Christ, you basically have rendered the church a, a, a group of people for whom it is impossible to demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God. If the manifold wisdom of God is the mystery that is revealed in Jew and Gentile coming together by virtue of the cross, you can't tell that story unless you're willing to make sacrifice and to suffer. It's kind of a fork in the road. Either you say, I really do want to follow Jesus and I want to understand how Paul can speak of boldness and confidence when he's in chains under Roman guard. Like, I want to know about that, so I'm going to start to move in a direction where I actually make sacrifice and, um, in ways that demonstrate that I trust Jesus and will follow after him. Or, you say, be honest with yourself and say, I really don't want that. If that's what Christianity is, not so much. And then you begin to, you know, you can think through, why are you here? And what do you think your call is? You as the people of God to demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God. Well, what does it look like? Well, friends, you can, take, you can take small steps or you can take big steps. And it wouldn't take much for us to brainstorm. What does it actually look like to sacrifice and to suffer, to, to demonstrate to the world that yet there's mystery? But it, when, I, when I deprive myself of rights for the sake of the gospel, I demonstrate God's wisdom. When I, when I deprive myself of as much money as I could have or as much time to pursue the things I want to pursue, or when I actually love people that are really hard to love, in each of these ways I demonstrate paradox, which the world would say that's exactly what you should not do to have a good time and to be fulfilled and to find your identity and purpose. The mystery that Paul reveals says, no, that is the exact way. Do you think Paul lacked identity? Do you think he lacked purpose? My goodness, I think he would have no idea what we struggle with because he's so committed to the mystery of God's manifold wisdom being uncovered. So think. You know, it can be as little we need. We need nursery and Sunday school teachers. Right? What are we... If, how are we committed to the manifold wisdom of God being put on display if we're not committed to training our children in it? We're in a renovation campaign. Our building is not working because of our growth, so we need to make it work. You know, do we actually believe that the manifold wisdom can be put on display here? Well, if I believe that, then I'm going to sacrifice a lot to make sure that that goes forward. You probably know two or three people sitting right here this morning who need to be loved or need to be challenged. And you've said, I'm not going to do that because it's uncomfortable. I'm not going to do that because it requires too much of me. And as a result, you know what? You don't demonstrate anything. You look just like everybody else outside the church. But when you go to that person or that situation and say, yes, this is hard for me. It costs me something. But you understand that the love of Christ and the beauty of his redemption and the unity of the Spirit can be put on display by engaging that hardship. The manifold wisdom of God gets put on display. At the end of this article on concept creep, there was a really interesting comment. And with this comment, I'll close. The, the concern of the people who are involved in the study is that as a result of concept creep and oversensitivity to harm, we're being overprotective of ourselves and of our children. And as a result, we're actually producing a weaker culture. Right? Pretty ironic. As a result of uh, trying to protect ourselves, we're making ourselves weaker. 
And so one person, one, uh, one person wrote, Muscles need resistance to develop. Bones need stress and shock to strengthen. And the growing immune system needs to be exposed to pathogens in order to function. Children are by nature anti-fragile. They get stronger when they learn to recover from setbacks, failures, and challenges to their cherished ideas. Friends, Paul exhibits a mystery in the suffering and setbacks and challenges to his own life. He puts on display what it looks like to have bones made stronger when they are shocked and muscles made stronger when they are torn. And he's handing this mystery off to the church. Ultimately, he's handing it off to us and asking us to put on the manifold wisdom of God. We will only do that when we are willing to move into that mystery, to live in paradox and to display God's wisdom to the world. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you this morning. You lived in paradox in a a willingness to be obedient unto death. A willingness to believe that the Father would redeem the story if you went to the cross. It is for your faithfulness that we are redeemed. And it is through the cross that we understand what reality is. So we ask that you would remove our cobwebs, you would clear our heads, and you would cause us to understand that to live in your wisdom is to live in paradox, but it is a paradox that actually reveals truth, that brings us closer to you, and that makes us human in the intent uh, or in the ways that you intended. Would you please make us more human in Christ? Would you please continue to wake us up? Would you please encourage our repentance and encourage our sacrifice? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.